Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right. We've heard the gospel reading this morning for Trinity Sunday. Uh, But I would like to look again at a portion of that text from John chapter 16. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. I'm calling this message this morning, Dazzle Gradually. And so our text comes from the upper room during the Last Supper. As Jesus is giving what is known as the upper room discourse, it's his longest single narrative in any of the gospels. It covers four chapters. John 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, or actually part of 12, and then picks up in 13. And it's, you know, it's where we hear Jesus say, by this will all people know that you're my disciples and that you have love for one another. It's where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but my me. It's where he says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. It's where he says, I will send you another advocate, a helper, that the advocate, the helper might be with you always. It's, it's where we hear Jesus say, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. It's where Jesus says, in this world you shall have trouble, but fear not, I've overcome the world. So much that's so rich from the teaching of Jesus is found in the upper room discourse. But then near the very end of the discourse, Jesus says this, I have many things to say to you but you can't handle them now. You're not ready for it. It's too much for you. You you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. He will declare to you the things to come. You you, you can't bear it. It, it's, It's too much. But the Spirit will guide you gently into all that you need to know. He'll reveal to you the things to come. This is, this is not mere prognostication of future events, like, you know, who's going to win the Super Bowl this year? Yeah, it's the Chiefs. We know that. But, but it's really talking about, okay, as we stay on this journey into Revelation, what comes next? What comes next? And what are these things that Jesus alludes to in the upper room to his apostles when he says, I have more things to tell you? but you can't handle them yet. What, what are those things? Well, I don't know exactly. I suspect one of those things was that Gentiles within about, we don't know, five years or so, they're going to understand that Gentiles as Gentiles, uncircumcised, not keeping the dietary codes, can be admitted into the Jewish body of Messiah as full participants. Jesus has alluded to it occasionally, I mean, very cryptically, I have other sheep. 
And Jesus is always engaged with Gentiles in a, well, he's, he's healed them and helped them. But he also had told the disciples when he sent them out, don't go to the towns of the Gentiles, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I think that's, that would be one of the things, but there's lots of things like that. You see, none of us are capable of receiving all the truth of God all at once. We just can't bear it. The full brightness of all truth would blind us. That's why the truth must dazzle gradually. To arrive at all truth is a lifelong journey under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I say lifelong, I really mean longer than you think by that. I don't mean, you know, 70, 80, 90 years. I mean, why do we have eternal life? Because that's probably how long it's going to take. I mean, what is the purpose of eternal life if it's not to increasingly be dazzled by the revelation of God's glory? Are you familiar with Emily Dickinson? One of America's greatest poets. She lived in Massachusetts from 1830 to, I think it was 1886. Uh, she, was, she was one of America's greatest poets and she is a stereotypical poet. She was pretty much a recluse. She was always by herself. Uh, she did keep up some correspondence with letters with people, but other than that, she didn't like being around people. Uh, she lived in the world of poetry. She wrote over 1,800 poems and exactly 10 were published in her lifetime. She's one of these artists that is discovered posthumously, like Van Gogh or like Herman Melville. People didn't know that she was a great poet. You know, and in a few obscure magazines, she'd have one or two poems published, 10 over the course of a lifetime. And then we found out, oh, she was like really good. She didn't number, I mean, she didn't name her, her she didn't give her, ordinarily she didn't give names to her poems. She didn't give them a title. She would just write the poem. And so now what we've done is we come along, we've just numbered them. I want to read to you poem number 1,263. People often call it tell it slant because that's in the, that's the first line of the poem, but it's not the title. There is no title. It's just poem number 1,263. It goes like this. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased, with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Okay, now you know where I got the title. All great titles, all great titles are all stolen. And if you want a great title, you steal it from the poets. Our long, I mean, this is what, this sermon, 
This sermon today is about the long, gradual, spirit-guided journey into the dazzling light of all truth. Our initial encounter with Jesus Christ, the one who is the truth of God, can be a dramatic, sudden encounter, or it can be just a kind of a slow awakening where you realize one day, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. It can be one or the other. Um, My experience is a little bit of both. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. And so the story of the gospel was familiar to me. It just didn't seem all that important. (laughs) It was just part of the kind of just the general fabric of my life. But then at age 15, there was this sudden encounter with Jesus Christ that changed everything. Now, the revelation of Jesus given to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road was so sudden, so overwhelming, that it actually did blind him for three days. And what was that revelation? The revelation was simply that Jesus is Lord. See, he thought he knew everything. He was one of those kind of guys. He knows everything. He's the Bible answer man. He's been a Bible scholar from his youth, trained under the best rabbis. He knows everything and he knows he knows everything. And out of his knowledge, he is persecuting these fools, these idiots, as he would probably address them, who dared to say that the Messiah was one crucified Galilean, Jesus of Nazareth. And as he nears the city of Damascus, he encounters the divine and he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he went blind. Because that was, it was just, it blew all the circuits. It was too much. He didn't really know that much. He knew that Jesus is Lord, but even that was so sudden that it blinded him for three days. So Paul received the essential revelation he needed on the Damascus Road, Jesus is Lord. But even Paul has to go on the long, gradual journey, guided by the Spirit into all truth, and you see it, you see it in his epistles. You see, the the journey of Paul toward greater revelation is documented in his epistles. His first epistles, first and second Thessalonians, he's, he's he's talking about the coming of Jesus, like every new Christian. That's his thing. That's what he's kind of focused on. Let a a couple of decades go by and he writes the epistle to the Romans, a very sophisticated epistle on soteriology, how we really understand salvation. But then you get to Ephesians and Colossians, whether Paul himself wrote it or his disciples later on, I'm not gonna, I'll leave that to the, to the scholars. That's, a, that's debated. I personally see no reason why he couldn't. I think some of the people that think, well, maybe Paul didn't write that, is they don't understand that, I mean, if people read 
my stuff that I was writing 20 years ago and read what I'm writing today, they go, that's not the same person. It must have come from the Zahn school. <laughs> People can change. Then you, read, then you read Ephesians and Colossians and you're just blasted into the stratosphere of this high Christology. That, by the way, without Ephesians and Colossians, we wouldn't have the Nicene Creed. That becomes the raw material to get to how we understand and articulate the Trinity. So you see it in, in his letters. One of the problems with fundamentalism is that it does not allow for growth. Now, I've used this word fundamentalism. And I know people, some people, probably not you, but some people, you know, they see me using that as a pejorative and they get a little angry with me. I'm really not trying to necessarily do that. I'm trying to be fairly accurate about what I mean by fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is an expression of religious faith characterized by certitude, sectarianism, and literalism. And as a movement, it is oblivious to its own interpretive lenses. You'll hear fundamentalists like to say things like, I just take the Bible as it is. No, you don't. First of all, you don't read biblical Hebrew and you don't read biblical Greek. You're already reading a translation and you are not a PhD level expert on the ancient Near East for the Old Testament and the Greco-Roman world of the first century for the New Testament. And you have all kinds of interpretive lenses. A fundamentalist is someone who has Coke bottle thick lenses and thinks they have perfect vision. They're not, they're not even aware that they're wearing glasses. And so we, we all read scripture through, there's no taking it as it is. It all has to be interpreted and we interpret it through a whole series of lenses, linguistically, denominationally, theologically, culturally, politically, etc. Fundamentalists are unaware of all that. And so they can be a handful. Um, I say it this way. Fundamentalism is to Christianity what paint by numbers is to art. Which is to say painting by numbers, if that's your hobby, great. But it's not art. And fundamentalism is an impoverished expression of Christianity. Fundamentalism imagines that all the truth is packaged in about a dozen pet doctrines. Now it differs from group to group what the dozen or so pet doctrines are, but they think you can just kind of get it as a package and you can get it all pretty quick. The real journey into all truth is a gradual dazzling that takes a lifetime and by lifetime I probably mean an eternal lifetime. To boast that you believe exactly what you believed 40 years ago is a sad boast. How did Jesus teach? He taught, how did Jesus primarily teach? By parables. Parables are not illustrations to help you quickly understand the truth. If anything, the parables are the opposite of that. The parables are how Jesus tells its slant. That's why Eugene Peterson's book on the parables of Jesus is entitled Tell Its Slant. 
parables at first disorient us. They give us a story. There's a narrative, but it's a bit disorienting. And we have to think and we have to ask, what does he mean by that? And we have to work on it. And over time, we all, I think, I'm not sure, but I think he's saying this. The parables are designed to dazzle gradually, to gently coax us into the alternative society that is the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is such a radical alternative to the way the world is that we can only apprehend it slowly. The reality that we don't instantly arrive at the fullness of truth at conversion when we're born again, when we're saved, whatever language you want to use, but are led by the spirit toward truth over the course of, of a lifetime is a phenomenon that is seen in the Bible itself. The Old Testament is the inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know the living God. The text itself documents the spiritual journey of Israel as God's chosen people toward the fullness of truth revealed in Messiah. But you have to, you, it's, you have to stay on the journey. You have to keep going. The Bible doesn't stand above the story it tells. It's fully immersed in it. The Bible itself is part of the story. The Bible is not so much a collection of timeless truths about God that are all equal as it is a spirit-inspired diary of the people of God on their journey of revelation led by the Spirit. So I read the Bible every day. I'm good about that. I have things I'm not good about, but Bible reading I'm good about. You can ask Perry, she'll bear witness. I'm an I'm a addicted Bible reader. And I read out of both Testaments every morning, Old and New Testaments. Currently, I'm in the book of Judges. Whew. I'm in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Yesterday, I read the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Now, what to say about Judges? Well, it's the most violent book in the Bible. It is the most violent book in the Bible, not Joshua. Not Numbers, not Exodus, Judges. The whole book is a wash in blood and gore. People are crushed, pounded, burned, maimed, disemboweled, gang raped, and dismembered. They are killed by swords, arrows, slings, tent pegs, millstones, and jawbones. The good guys and the bad guys are all killers alike. If you want a violent religion, all you have to do is camp out in Judges. If you like the idea of a religion that endorses violence, go to Judges. You'll love it. Of course, that's no way to read the Bible. The Bible is the inspired story of a spiritual journey as we are gradually dazzled by the ever-increasing ever increasing truth that does not reach its fullness until it's revealed in Jesus Christ. Because God is like Jesus. 
God has always been like Jesus. Now, there's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus, but we didn't always know that. Now we do. So yesterday I read Judges. And yeah, there, there was a guy got jailed. Pow, pow, pow. Pounded a tent peg through his head. Hallelujah. And, um, but then I read Colossians. Now, now, you say, are you dismissing? Are you dismissing judges? I'm saying, no, it's part of the story. It's part of the journey. I'm the one that actually reads the Old Testament <laughs> every day. You understand, Bible believing can be an empty signifier. You don't have to actually read the Bible or grapple with it, wrestle it. Try, you just have to say it. I'm a Bible believer. I'm a Bible believing Christian. Okay, you're in the club. Well, what I, yeah, I am too, but I actually read the text and grapple with it and wrestle with it, try to incorporate it into my life as I should by the Spirit. That's different. So I read this in Colossians 2. This, this, is, this is Paul or the Pauline school, if you will. I think it's Paul. He writes about Christ, about Jesus Christ. Here, here's the thing I know about Paul. He was an absolute Jesus freak, like me. He's a Jesus freak. I like that about Paul. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together so that he might have first place in all things for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him God was pleased to reconcile all things. You talk about high Christology, that's the mountaintop there. Paul has this recurring phrase, all things, all things. He uses it in this, in this little passage five times. All things, all things, all things, all things, all things. What, what, what about these all things? Well, Christ is before all things. Very God, very God begotten, not made. He's before, Christ is before all things. And guess what? All things, all things are created through Christ and all things are for Christ. Paul says, in Christ, all things hold together. And the grand crescendo is, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile all things. All that's wrong with the world is to be reconciled and restored and healed in Christ. That's good. So if Judges is a picture of all things falling apart, you know how the book ends. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it's, it's, it's really, a, it ends with a picture of anarchy and a civil war. If Judges is a picture of all things falling apart, Colossians points us to the one who holds all things together. This, this, is, this is my apocatastasis moment of this sermon. That Christ is the one that restores all things. You see, the Bible tells the story of how God keeps his promises. Especially his most important promise, and he keeps all his promises, but most important part, the promise to Abraham and the promise to David. What did God promise Abraham? That in his seed, descendant, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
And what did he promise to David? That he would have a son who would reign upon a throne forever. Your seed, Abraham, will bless all the families of the earth. Your son, David, will sit upon an eternal throne. And that's why the New Testament begins like this. Matthew 1, 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But you have to go through a lot to get there. If you start in Genesis. But you just keep going. You don't stop anywhere along the way and say, okay, this, this is it, this is it, this is it. This is, no, you keep going until you get to Jesus. The Bible dazzles gradually, so don't abandon the plot before you get to Jesus. If the Bible is a journey toward the fullness of God revealed in Jesus Christ, so is Christianity itself. As Christians, we do not claim that Christianity is absolute truth. And if you are doing that, don't do that anymore because you'll paint yourself into a corner. As Christians, we do not claim that Christianity is absolute truth. As Christians, we claim Jesus Christ is absolute truth. Oh, you see, I got a good name. Oh yeah, that's right, that's right. That sounds right. Christianity, as the religion that forms around the confession that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the absolute perfect revelation of God's truth, Christianity as the religion that grows up around that is capable of growth, change, and development over time and has done so. Christianity is capable of making advancement in theology and ethics. For example, on the day of Pentecost, the church could not have articulated our understanding of the triune nature of God found in the Nicene Creed. It took about 300 years to get there because it just did. I mean, they, they knew, even on Pentecost, they, they knew to say that Jesus was God, but is he subordinate? How does that work? And what about the Holy Spirit? And how does this all... It, and there were lots of competing ideas for a long time until finally they arrive. But it took them 300 years. On the day of Pentecost, there wasn't any Christian that was going around floating the idea of the abolition of the institution of slavery. Now, before you just, you know, do all this, you know, those terrible Christians, they had slavery. Everybody did. The whole world did. There, I mean, there were people that understood that it could be cruel and maybe tried to mitigate the suffering, but there wasn't anybody in the ancient world that was presenting a vision for the abolition of the institution of slavery. Eventually, Christians arrive at that position. You go, oh, we should get away. We should do away with this. Not try to mitigate its suffering, but abolish it altogether. But that's part of the journey. It's part of the journey. I mean, it's, it's my own life. I started where I started. You know, I just sort of picked up some stuff, just not really paying that much attention. And then at 15, I encounter Christ and, and I'm paying attention now. And by the time I was, I don't know, let's say, by the time I was 22, I actually knew everything. 
I did. And uh, I did. If I didn't know it, it wasn't worth knowing. So I, you know, I knew everything. Seven years. I mean, how long do you think it's going to take? By the time I was 40, though, I began to doubt that I knew everything. And by the time I was 45, I began to doubt if I really knew anything other than Jesus is Lord. I mean, I had to pass through judges, but I didn't stay there. Really, the grace in my life has been the grace of curiosity. Just, just stay curious. What happens next? What comes next? You say, well, what is your latest revelation? Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't memorize the poem. Too bright for our infirm delight, the true superb surprise. I can't just blind you. You say, well, is it, is it something bad? No, it's something wonderful. It's Jesus. High Christology. And it'll be the same in your own journey. Be faithful, but don't be stubborn. Be faithful to Christ, but don't be stubborn. Remain orthodox. There is, I mean, I'm, I'm orthodox. Small o, you know. You don't, have to, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So the wheel's been invented, stay with it. Remain orthodox, but don't be fundamentalist. Don't be, you know, become captured by certitude, sectarianism, and literalism. This may be the most important, or the second most important thing I can say. Uh, become comfortable with mystery. All progress begins with mystery, and a lot of it remains mystery. So just, just be comfortable with mystery. Don't be so modern. I've got to have all the answers, because you're not going to. I'll give you a hint though on, on the, the direction of, of your growth. The Holy Spirit will take you deeper into revelations of love. The Holy Spirit will take you deeper into revelations of love. I'm of the opinion, it's my opinion, but I think it's shared by many, that the highest peaks of divine revelation in all of Scripture come from the writings of John the Elder. I mean the Gospel of John and especially 1 John. Let's take those two books. Gospel of John and the Epistle 1 John. I'll give you an example and then I'll, uh, I need to be done. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. John the Elder. We don't know exactly who he is. Maybe he's John, son of Zebedee. Probably not. Doesn't matter. We think he's in Ephesus when he's writing this and he's an old man. I mean, wh why do I think that John surpasses Peter and James, even Paul? Because he just lived longer. You know, Paul lives into his 60s. John the Elder lives into his maybe 90s. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. 
And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. That's why I keep saying over and over, the world will be saved because Jesus is the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. If I were to give you some signposts and say, let the Spirit lead you in this direction, I would say, well, Jesus is the Savior of the world. So let that be your source of hope. And then I would say, believe that God loves you. He, he writes, we have, we, we uh, where is it? So we know, so we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Believe that God loves you. That may take, you know, 10 years to get that one under your belt. But let the Holy Spirit help you. That God really does love you. Not for the sake of it. God loves you. God loves you. You're not in God's eyes, snow-covered dung as one of the reformers like to describe it. No, God loves you, you, you. And then you can move on to God is love. And then, and then you can understand that the whole telos, goal, aim, purpose of being itself is to arrive at union with God. In this little passage of just a few verses, that word abide occurs six times. It occurs 50 times in the, in the epistle. There's only five chapters. I'm going to read it again. Listen to the abides. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. So stay on the journey. Let the truth dazzle gradually. Amen. Stand up with me. We're going to, on Trinity Sunday, this is what we do. We always confess the Apostles' Creed, which is a more ancient creed, but it's not as fully expressive of trying to give us language for articulation of how the church understands the Trinity as the Nicene Creed, which was, it was first done in 325 at Nicaea, and then in three, it might be 87, 81. Thank you, got a scholar on the front row. 381 in Constantinople, it reached this form. And so Christians have been confessing this for a long time. And so uh, let's do that. Let's confess a very robust articulation of Christian faith in the form of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, 
God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you for uh, reciting that right when I slipped off into the Apostles' Creed version. Now let's confess our sins and receive the gracious forgiveness of our Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious because he loves you. To all who confess their sins, and in humility, ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.